This morning, I want to share with you a little bit about um, some things that you're pretty familiar with. You know, when you think of the word salt, I say salt. I know you have an image in mind. Maybe it's the image on the screen. Maybe it's a different image. Or even sugar. Put an image in your mind. What do you think of? We know even if you follow anything within the stock market, and those of us who have watched our, our retirement things going up and down, we all know what's happening in the stock market. But part of stocks and trading forever has been the idea of salt and sugar. They're both commodities. They've been part of our history. They've been part of our economy and even our daily lives as we live each day. There are all kinds of things written about these sorts of things. I don't know how much you guys enjoy Julie Andrews. I grew up loving Julie Andrews. Uh, she's a beautiful voice. And she would think, see things like, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And I loved that. And actually, you know, I actually, after seeing that, thought it was okay to just get a spoon and start eating sugar that way. <laughs> Until, of course, my grandmother and my mother told me, no, that's not very healthy for you, Scott. You shouldn't do that. Because we know that some say that too much sugar causes you to gain weight, while we also know too much salt can cause our blood pressure to go high. And as you get older, we all tend to be careful and start watching those things, especially me living in Japan where they love, actually East Asia, they love their soy sauce. So have to watch that salt content. There are sayings that you're probably familiar with, like pouring salt in the wound. This is a saying that refers to some things that may be good, uh, but does not feel good. Or it can also mean something that relates to the idea of doing something bad, thereby making it even worse. We even have sayings like, even salt looks like Sugar, which basically means don't always trust what you see. We know that both tears and sweat are salty, but they get you different results. Tears, when we shed them, oftentimes get us sympathy. And people want to encourage us when we're going through emotional difficulties. While sweat, like since I've come back to the States, I've been working real hard to lose weight. Uh, I'll be honest, COVID wasn't nice to me. Uh, I ended up being stuck inside in Japan. They do things very slowly. So we were under, even right up till now, we're still wearing masks in Japan. And you might go, wow, really? Yeah, we still are wearing masks in Japan. And so things were shut down. And so it impacted our routines. And of course, I gained some weight, been back in the States working real hard and uh, trying to lose weight, get better in shape. And actually, this, this next weekend, going down to my son, going to uh, run 5K. I haven't uh, run long distance since, since high school and college, where I used to do 10, 15 miles on a regular basis. So I've been working, training to do a 5K. Ultimately, I want to get back to Japan, do a 10K, and see where that takes me. But I can actually do 5K without going... <sighs> Which some of us, some of you can relate to. When I first came back, that's literally what I was doing. My wife can attest to that. I was like, whoo, 100 feet. And I was, <sighs> so uh, just trying to get an exercise. And that's what happens when we work out. 
We sweat. And we know that our sweat is salty. But again, through exercise and hard work, uh, we sweat. History tells us that sugar trade and manufacturing is recorded in ancient Sumerian Sanskrit writings. And is found beginning somewhere between 1500 B.C. and 500 B.C. And in India, as well as New Guinea, we see these things related to the trade of sugar. What's interesting about sugar is that over the past 200 years, uh, the price has fluctuated up and down around the world, ranging from two cents uh, nearly 200 years ago to 42 cents a pound. 200 years ago, uh, Americans consumed just over two pounds of sugar uh, per year. And in 1972, uh, two pounds of sugar per year. In 1972, get this. Uh, it's amazing. The internet, I, I, had, I, I don't always trust everything on the internet, but I went and did research. You always, they teach you in college and seminary, make sure you triangulate your research, which means you're not quoting someone who's quoting the same person over and over. Find different ones. And so as I found research in 1972, that number rose to 121 pounds of sugar uh, per year. And currently, we consume... 152 pounds of sugar per year based on the American Consumer Research Report. Now, understand this is not just plain table sugar because some of y'all say, I don't eat that much sugar. Well, it includes things like syrups and honeys, uh, fruit, desserts, drinks that we consume, juices, all of those things. And here's an interesting fact about salt. Today, about $5 will buy you enough salt to last you a year, and for some of you, even more than a year. Isn't that interesting? For us as human beings, you know what? We can live without sugar, but to be honest, we cannot live without salt. You may be thinking, uh, I don't know, Scott. I kind of like my sweetener and my sugar. I actually love to have that chocolate cake after uh, dinner, Or, man, I love, I love my desserts. I got to have one every single day. That was my grandfather. Every single day, I got to have a dessert. Well, the reality is our bodies don't necessarily need that. Uh, We do enjoy sweet things. Um, But to be honest, it's not as important to our lives as salt is. Our bodies can break down carbohydrates and actually turn them in to the sugars that our bodies need. Salt is the most essential necessity in human existence. The human body can't live without some sodium. It's needed to transmit nerve impulses. Any doctors here? Anyone? There we go. There's always one in every audience. (laughs) You know how important salt is. Yes, it's very important. It transmits nerve impulses. that contract and relax muscle fibers, including those in the heart as well as those within our blood vessels, and maintain a proper fluid balance. It doesn't take much to do this, but salt is important. Salt is the cheapest and easy, easily obtained commodity that we have. However, if you look at history, salt used to be one of the most treasured 
commodities. In fact, in the place where Julie and I lived, uh, around ancient African times, the area where we lived, people would come and they would go to the Moors, even the Songhai in those areas, and they would trade salt for gold. In fact, they would say, I would like a pound of salt, and they would give them a pound of gold. Man, wouldn't that be great living at that time? You know, it, the, the process of salt growing up, I mean, not growing up, living in Africa for 14 years, we would see Africans painstakingly trying to process and create salt because it is so important. In ancient times, it was a tedious and painstaking process. People would boil seawater in special stone pans that needed to be refueled every day and kept up with. And they would drain the salt water into fields for months before they would then scrape the salty residue. In fact, if you go to West Africa where we live, you'd see them scraping that salt off the top and creating mounds and mounds and mounds of salt that they would sell in the market. And it was a painstaking process. This method is still used even today. The English word salary actually comes from the Latin word for salt. And that word is salarium. It's basically the money that was given to soldiers for salt. You may not be aware even that wars have been fought over salt. Salt was used to preserve foods, even for health, so that way people could have food last for a long time. Salt is essential for life, for human beings. Think about all the fluids that we consume that have salt. Food without salt, we know, is bland. You know, my grandmother used to put salt on the table. In fact, my grandmother had a lot of rules. Uh, she would say, you know, don't ask for something if it's not on the table. And so when we did put the salt on, she was also careful to make sure we didn't put too much salt. Oh, careful, don't take too much salt. But salt, the right amount of salt, makes something very delicious, delectable. Love to taste it. But too much salt makes you go, we don't like it. But when you do it right, people want to come back and have more and more. Think about that. When the right amount of salt is given, people want to come back and have more and more. We even find salt references in the Bible. In fact, there are over 100 passages in the Bible that refer to salt. Let me share one of them, uh, which is a story from God's word and will also help you understand the background to this story. During the time of Jesus, when Jesus walked the earth uh, and then he was baptized, he began to take disciples to walk with him, to follow him. He called them to be those who would travel with him. And as they traveled with him, he oftentimes was seen, if you follow the New Testament, and you're familiar with the scriptures, there's a series of books called the Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, which tell the life of Jesus. And in those, you will see that Jesus spent a lot of time teaching. And his disciples would travel with him as he was teaching. He was also performing many miracles 
that people began to see. In fact, his miracles were unlike anything that people had ever seen or heard before. This caused many people to want to seek after Jesus in order to hear his teachings and to see his miracles. As he did these things, this began to create a little bit of tension within his community amongst the religious leaders. They were called Pharisees, the Sadducees, and others. Well, on one particular day, Jesus was with his disciples, and they were walking up alongside a mountain, and there were crowds following him. He sat his disciples down and began to teach him and the crowds that were there. And they began to listen as he began to tell them this story. And again, this is what we recognize if you're familiar with the New Testament. It's what we find in chapter 5, 6, 7, that section called the Sermon on the Mount. Well, in there, there's the story where Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how can it be made salty again? It's worthless, only to be thrown out and trampled upon by men. Then he said, you are the light of the world, like a city that's set up on a hill that cannot be hidden. He said, nobody takes a light and put a basket over it. Instead, they put it up on a lampstand so it can give light to the entire household. And he said, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Well... If we go back to the beginning and think about what he's saying here, you may ask yourself a question. How can salt lose its flavor? Well, Jesus refers to it as something being problematic. Anyone here, okay, we, let's see how this works. Anyone here a science or a chemistry teacher? Oh, okay, I was. <laughs> Uh, I used to teach high school, and one of the things that most students, they didn't like doing chemistry. I don't know. Did anyone here love chemistry in school? Oh, there we go. We got one who loved it. Excellent. Well, chemistry is actually fun to see those chemical reactions and what can happen. It's just amazing to see. But one of the things you might wonder, wait a minute, how can salt lose its flavor? Well, one of the things that you can learn and even show through experimentation that too much exposure to moisture can cause the sodium chloride to disappear that would ultimately leave a white powder that looks like salt but would have diminished flavor. It wouldn't be as salty and it would not have the same preservative capabilities as pure salt would. Salt we see, as I already showed you in our previous slides, it's essential for life and for living. Jesus was trying to say and show that those who follow and those who believe and follow after him are like people who are like salt. This was Jesus' challenges to his disciples and those who follow him. Are there things, we can ask ourselves, are there things in our lives, metaphorically, that can cause us to lose our saltiness, our flavor? 
things that leave us bland. Remember when I said earlier, the right amount of salt makes us want to come back and have seconds or even thirds? That's what we are supposed to be, salt. People should be drawn to it. In Africa, they would have, and I don't know anyone ever raised cattle or anything like that. If you raise cattle, they used to have, especially in Africa, they, you have to deal with the issues potentially of your animals making sure that they have enough salt in them. And so uh, they would put out salt licks. So it would also cause the animals to want to drink as well. And in the desert, in the area where we lived in West Africa, you want your cattle. We worked amongst the Fulani people, and they raised cattle. And they wanted to make sure that salt was part of their cattle's diet on a regular basis. So they would have salt licks. They were there. They were necessity. They were important. They helped to preserve the life of the animals. And the animals would ultimately go back and keep going back to that. Think about that. How do we live our lives? Are we something that people are drawn to? To want to come back and hear more? Are there things in our lives that prevent us from being ultimately what God wants us to be? We see in this same passage, Jesus talks about light. He said, you are the light of the world. He equates our lives with being light and challenges us to let our light shine before men and not to hide it. So let me ask you, how are you letting your light shine so that people will credit it to God and ultimately give him the glory? Or do we find ourselves hiding it, hiding our light? The challenge Jesus gives us is that we should not be hiding our light, but letting it shine like a city that's set up on a hill that cannot be hidden. As believers, we have what people need. We're called to be salt. And we're called to be light so that people will be drawn to us. I don't know about you. I know in the summertime, you put a little bit of light outside. What comes at night? All those insects, don't they? They're drawn to those things. They're drawn. You know, that's the power of light. In fact, us, they've done studies that people who are constantly in darkness, they crave light. In fact, if you go to places like Iceland and Greenland, the high suicide, it's not the highest in the world, but very high suicide, they talk about how the darkness creates depression in their lives. We're people who are drawn naturally toward light. And in this sense, metaphorically, how is the light in our lives living out? How is it shining? As believers, we have what people need. Salt and light. We can give it to them. We can share it with them. In the same sermon that Jesus was sharing on the mount that I just told you, he also shared with them another story. And that was a way to pray that was closely connected to the idea on how we should live. Let's take a moment to consider what Jesus taught his disciples in the crowds. In that same teaching about prayer, he said, Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This was a simple prayer model. Please understand, this was not Jesus' magic formula for how we are to pray. We know it's not a magic formula because Jesus also gave us an example in Scripture of two men who went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other one was a tax collector. And so when they went up to pray, the Pharisee was very quick to say, God, I thank you that I'm not like these sinners, these wicked people. And he lists several adulterers or even like this tax collector. And he goes on to say, I, I tithe twice a week or twice. Yeah, twice a week or every two weeks, something like that. He tithes, he's tithing, giving what he's supposed to. But then we see that the tax collector, he stood off in a distance with his head down. He didn't even raise his head up. And he was beating his chest over and over. And he says, forgive me. Forgive me, Lord, for I am a sinner. And then Jesus said something very powerful. He turned to the crowd and he said, I'll tell you, this one went home or went home justified. Meaning he was acknowledged, forgiven by God. What's that say about this one? What we learn from this, it's the heart. What's in our heart? As we pray. It's not the outward actions. Yes, our outward actions has an impact, but it starts in the heart. What's in our heart? There's another blank one. Sorry. That was actually a video I was going to show you, but the video was not working. Next one. So let's go back and look at the beginning of the prayer that Jesus taught. At the beginning of the prayer, we're told that this should be a measuring stick for our lives. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done. We should ask ourselves, how is this displayed in my life? How is this displayed in your life? How are we letting our lights shine and how do we let them shine and how do we live in such a way to see God's kingdom come here on earth? It begins with the challenge, honestly, to get out and cross over our street. You know, when I was growing up, and I, I really love the earlier days. Uh, I don't want to dwell on them, but I do love the earlier days. You know, even growing up, I loved reading uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder. I love Little House on the Prairie. I, I even loved when they eventually came out with those. We were showing those to our kids uh, on video. Um, but I love those stories because people were connected. People made it a point to get to know their neighbors. Yes, they had issues. They had problems. But people knew their neighbors. It's so easy, especially for us in Japan, 
to never, ever speak to your neighbors. We have to be very intentional. And when we do, they're like, you're, you're talking to me? Because they're very isolated, very much closed into themselves. I, I notice that America can become that way more and more. Are we taking a point to let our lights shine, to be salt and light to our neighbors with the goal to see God's kingdom come here on earth? How do we open our lives and our mouths to those that God places in our path? You know, I'll be honest, it's not easy to do. You know, my wife and I, as we, you heard Jimmy share earlier, we have spent the last 23 years on the mission field, moving from Africa to Asia. And I'll be honest with you, that was not easy. I went from a very laid back culture where, you know, you live, my wife and I even lived in a hut, you know, and uh, we would have goats that would come into our hut, you know, because you didn't have doors, they would just come right in. You know, and uh, dirt floors, uh, straw roofs, uh, and life was simple. You know, we would sit and I would have tea every day with guys around me. And in those opportunities, we would talk and had opportunities to talk about God in those things. Very laid back, easy, easier pace of life. It was hot as can be though. And Africans work so hard to just even survive and eat every day, to go out to the fields. My wife and I, when we were in East Africa and we were learning how to do a field, man, I I learned to plow a field with an animal. That was something else. That was hard to do. You know, talk about making a straight road. That is hard to do. But it helped me gain and appreciate it because my grandpa you know, when I was growing up on the farm, he had a tractor. That was a lot easier to keep those rows with a tractor. But I was then, going back to the whole Laura Ingalls Wilder earlier days, helped me gain an appreciation for life and having that, trying to keep that row in there. And then, of course, you know, learning. Remember, Julie, how we had to drop the seed and put your foot over, drop the seed, put your foot over, pushing the dirt in as we were uh, planting seed as well. You know... Moving from Africa, simple life, it was hard. But moving to Asia, that was something else. To be honest, we were comfortable. We became comfortable in Africa. We knew the culture. We knew the people. We were known by them. We were even respected by them. But then we went to East Asia. And we didn't know nothing about East Asia. I mean, I'll be honest, you know. Uh, go to East Asia, I knew about Asian food. I mean, I, I had Asian food here in America. Uh, I met Asians and knew Asians from class and so forth, but I didn't know anything about Asia. We didn't know the culture. We didn't know the people. In fact, the first morning we're there, I decide to go and explore. Go down the hill into the main street, And all I want to get is a simple cup of coffee. I walked into a shop, opened the door, and there's a smiling lady there. And I look at the sign, and I can't read anything. And so I'm like, okay, maybe maybe they speak a little bit English. So I said, latte. 
And she looked at me and she rattled off something. And I'm like, mm. and I'm saying, latte. And she said something, what I think was the same thing. And I'm like, okay, we're not communicating. I tried it one more time. Latte. <laughs> and I, she said something again. And I was like, okay, this isn't working. So I walked out and left. I did not know because I didn't have the language, but eventually I found out that she was basically asking me, what kind of latte do you want? Do you want a vanilla latte? Would you like a flavoring in your latte? Because the word for latte, she understood what I was saying because the word in Korean for latte is rate. (laughs) So it was close enough. She knew exactly what I was saying. She just said things back to me trying to, figure out what do I want. And so, okay. You know, I didn't even know coffee. Coffee was kohi. Ooh, that's pretty close too. Kohi. So I was lost. I didn't know what to do. It was difficult adjusting to there. But as we began to learn the culture, we were hurt. We were distraught because we began to understand that the people here was a high suicide rate, one of the highest in the world due to the pressures they faced in life. While living in South Korea and Japan, we focused on learning the language and learning the culture. We got to know students and we got to know the adults and to learn about their lives and the pressures that they faced every day from educational pressures, trying to get A's and get acceptable grades that would please their parents to performing well, very performance-driven culture, not just in the arts, which is very high, but also in their academia, in their life, in their jobs. And so for them, sometimes it's more honorable, and we don't understand that word, honor, as compared to this culture. You know, if you happen to watch and remember movies like Karate Kid, and the third, I think it was the third one, no, second one, when they went to Okinawa. And that one there, you see how the one person, their entire life was turned upside down because he felt he was dishonored. That is what honor and shame is like in that culture. It's very powerful. And so for them, it's much easier to give up their life to preserve not only their honor, but the honor of their family. By committing suicide. In fact, Julie will tell you, if you sit down and talk, there isn't a day that doesn't go by. We're riding the train system in Japan, and we see human incident on the board. That means there's delays on the track because someone (laughs) threw themselves on the track and committed suicide. This happens every single day. One of the highest suicide rates in the entire world. The pressures of school, job, Family are so big. We listened to them. We tried to encourage them and talk with them. We developed a love for them and ministered to them alongside South Koreans and Japans in both of those places that we lived. All those things we did as we listened to them and tried to encourage them. You know, if we stopped doing those things... Those would have been good things, just to listen to them and encourage them. However, in reality, we couldn't stop there. We all can touch lives 
and do good or even great things. But the reality is that people still need to hear the good news. We heard the choir sing beautifully this morning. I love, I love hearing choir music. They sang, I love to tell the story. Let me ask you, do you love to tell the story? Do you really love are those words? If we love to tell the story, are we doing it? That's what people need to hear. Keep in mind, the good things we do are not going to get people to heaven. Only belief in Jesus Christ does that. These things that we are doing are means to touch the lives of people. And doing these things helps to open the door. Us encouraging them, listening to them. That opens doors, but we can't stop there. At your workplaces, you listen, you encourage. But where do we go from there? Your friends, your neighbors, we listen. It's like Jimmy said, you know, I want to hear what you have to say. And oftentimes they say, hey, tell me your story. Open door. We need to share. Because just being good people is not going to get them to heaven. Because in God's eyes, they're like filthy rags. The Bible's filled with individuals who made differences because God chose them for that task. Think about Moses when he was asked to confront Pharaoh and lead the people out of Israel. We're going to come back to this because he debated with God, but ultimately... He had to realize, not my will, but yours. Noah, he was asked to build an ark. Think about his neighbors, the pressures, the ridicule that he faced. This wasn't for a year. These were years that he's building this ark. Again, not my will, but yours. Gideon. He had to go fight against the Midianites and tore down the Asherah poles and the places where people worshipped. And again, not my will, but yours, as he fought them with just 300 men. These are examples of people who had to be willing to say, not my will, but yours be done. We too are supposed to say the same thing. In essence, what we are saying to God is, God, whatever you want. Whatever you want. That's a hard thing to say. You might be saying, Scott, those things aren't comfortable. They're not easy. Well, let's consider. Are we willing to say and be honest? We can say this to God. God, this is hard. It's even scary. And I can't do this on my own. But whatever you want, I'm willing to do. Or do we find ourselves saying, God, you know, I can do this, but you know what? I'm really not comfortable with this. Or I'm not even good at this. Besides, God, this is a little scary You know what, God? There's others, you know, who are much more qualified. You know, you got missionaries. They can do this stuff. I'm just an ordinary person. I can't do this. I, I, I don't know what to say. Who am I? 
Let's go back to Moses. You remember the multiple excuses that Moses gave when God told him to go. He said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God says, wait, 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 wait. Remember, I'm going to be with you. In fact, you're going to know this because I'm going to bring you back here to worship. Well, then Moses gives another excuse. He says, "Uh, they're not going to believe me. Notice what he says. If I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What am I supposed to tell them? What does he tell them? Tell them, I am sent you to. Then he comes up with another excuse. What if they won't believe me? And they won't obey me. And they say, you know, the Lord didn't appear to you. Well, he gives them not one example, you know, staff, take it in your hand, throw it down. Up, see your hand, stick it in your robe. Pull it out. Ah, also, if they still don't believe that, go down and take some water and pour it out. Watch it turn into blood. All these things, staff to snake. Hand to leprosy, water to blood. Again, three powerful signs. What does Moses do? All right, Lord, I'm ready. No, he didn't do that. He says, "Uh, Lord, (laughs) I've not really been eloquent in speech, either in the past or even in the recent years, since you've been speaking to your servant. Besides, I'm slow. I'm hesitant to say things. And Jesus, I mean, God says, who gave people mouths? Who made them deaf and mute? And he tells them, I will help you. And then, did that fix it? No, he came up with another one. He comes back and says, Lord, please, just, just send somebody else. Please, just send somebody else. You know, at this point, God's been patient. Now we see very specifically written, he was angry. Angry at Moses. But he still had a plan. He said, I'll send your brother Aaron. And he will be like your voice. And say whatever needs to be said. And then we see that Moses went. You know, sometimes we can be like Moses and come up with all kinds of excuses. Is God upset with us because of our many excuses? We come up with excuses as to why we are not being salt or light or sharing the story, the good news. We say, it's too hard. Or maybe things don't turn out the way we think they should or... People are not responding. Lord, I'm being obedient, but they're just not responding. You remember the story of the sower? You know, he sows the seed, some fell on the path, eaten up. Some fell amongst the thorns, choked out. Some fell in there, didn't have strong roots, was scorched. But some fell on the good soil. And produce some 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. 
The sower was just told to sow. Not worry about the results. That's God's job. We're to be faithful and obedient. Remember, what is the standard and goal that God wants from us? Not my will, but yours be done. When we become God's children, we're called to die to ourselves and live for God and the will that he has for our lives, what he's laid out for us. He wants to use us as his vessels for his glory to see his kingdom come. Remember, we have everything Moses had and even more. We have the very presence of God dwelling in our lives who's able to speak with us. He even said, don't worry what you need to say before rulers or kings because it won't be you who are speaking. It'll be the spirit speaking through you. God will give you things. I can attest to this. I've been in places in different countries around the world where I come out and I'm speaking and I'm like, I didn't even know I had this in me. I didn't even know I had this much language in me. I can't believe God used me to say those things. It was God. All we have to do is trust God. We don't have to come up with excuses. Maybe we have in the past and God's been patient with us. But remember, he's called us to be salt, to be light. So in light of that, what is God challenging you toward now? Or we're at the beginning of the year, February. What is God challenging you as an individual or as a church toward this year? Remember what I share with you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how can it be made salty again? It's worthless to be thrown out and trampled upon by men. You are the light of the world. Like a city set up on a hill that cannot be hidden. No one takes a light and puts a basket over it. Instead, they put it up on a lampstand so it can give light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, your neighbors, your co-workers, your families, people that God places in your path. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Not easy, but God is with us like he was with Moses. He's with us every step of the way so that we can live and say, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Your word is powerful. Lord, it's transforming. It's encouraging. And it challenges us. And yes, Lord, there have been times, even myself overseas, that it's hard. Lord, I, I don't understand the culture. What if I make a mistake? You know, they speak in different Aspects of showing respect and and I haven't learned all of those proper grammatical ways of saying. But yet God challenges me and says, don't worry about that. Just be obedient. 
Lord, help us to be obedient no matter where we are. No matter who we are with, no matter who we have the opportunity, Lord. Help us to be salt that people want to and are drawn to come back to. Help us to be light to point them to the light of Christ. So that, Father, ultimately, not only are we able to say, not my will but yours be done, but those that you are drawing to yourself are surrendering to you and are too also saying, not my will but yours be done. Help us, Lord, for we cannot do it apart from you. We do not have the means or capability. We need you every step of the way. So we entrust this to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.